Welcome to the Grant Street Experience. I'm your host, Grant Irvin, and welcome to another fabulous episode of the Grant Street Experience. Um, Ironic, we were just talking about editing, and I have to flub my name as we kind of jump into this. Um, We're really excited to be with you guys uh, again today for another episode. Um, We have our friends with us uh, from uh, the American Cities Climate Challenge, uh, which has been a partnership with the City of Pittsburgh, uh, the National Resources Defense Council, and an organization called Delivery Associates. Um, So we want to welcome them to the show here today. Um, But first, we'll just go around with some quick introductions. we got our co-host, Rebecca Kiernan. Good morning, Rebecca. How are you today? Hey, good morning, Grant. I love the the light show you got going on back there. Thanks. Is that that a new new addition to the the scenery that you have? Just a different seat at the table. (laughs) (laughs) Same table, different, different view. Same table, different view, changing your perspective on the world today, right? Yep. Uh, And then we have our guest with us, uh, Will Bernstein. Will, how are you? Doing good, thanks. Our the city's climate advisor, and then also Danny Munoz from Delivery Associates. Danny, how are you today? I'm good. I'm good. Thanks for having me. Great, great to be here. Um, Will, why don't we start off with you? Um, maybe just a, a introduce yourself to the audience, a uh, little bit about uh, Will Bernstein, your background, and, uh, and your role as the City of Pittsburgh's Climate Advisor. Sure. Uh, my name is Will Bernstein. I'm the City's of Cli- Climate Advisor. I'm placed in the City's Department of or Office of uh, Sustainability and Resilience through the American Cities Climate Challenge, which is uh, a nationwide effort of the Bloomberg Philanthropies and NRDC, the Natural Resources Defense Council, 25 cities that are um, working to advance climate goals uh, with an eye towards 2030 in particular. Um, I've been in Pittsburgh for about 15 years, uh, moved here originally for grad school at Carnegie Mellon uh, Heinz College for public policy. I've been doing public policy work around the city uh, since then and have been with the city now for little under two years. Wow, that's great. Awesome. And Danny, how about you? Yeah, so I am a colleague of Will's uh, as part of the American Cities Climate Challenge. I work for an organization called Delivery Associates, which is a a lead partner of the challenge and provides cities with uh, various implementation support and strategy advice. And so I kind of came to this work having also studied public policy and public administration, um, generally with a, a more global focus, but I have worked either in government or adjacent to government for the entirety of, of my career. And as part of the American Cities Climate Challenge, I work with Pittsburgh, so that's why I'm here today. Thank you. And then also I work with Boston, Minneapolis, and St. Paul. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, maybe um, uh, give folks a little intro to kind of uh, National Resources Defense Council, kind of the host organization um, and kind of their role in, in the challenge. Yeah, so NRDC is you know, one of the nation's leading environmental groups that I think a lot of people have probably um, heard of. They work on a wide range of environmental issues, but uh, especially now climate change is a, is a top priority. And um, especially given the lack of, um, of federal leadership on climate change over the last four years, uh, the climate challenge has been a way to activate groups like NRDC and then cities that are doing really good work on climate to kind of take the lead on uh, addressing our carbon emissions. Uh, so that's 
it was a program that cities were asked to apply to. Pittsburgh was one that put together uh, a great plan uh, and now has been, been part of this nationwide initiative for the last couple of years. There's a, a network of climate advisors out there. Is that correct? And, That's and right. Every, every city uh, has both uh, folks from national organizations like Danny and then climate advisors placed locally. So I have what, counterparts in each of the other cities. And what's the relationship, I guess? Is there a lot of interplay between those advisors and, and, and how you guys are kind of embedded into cities? Yeah, there is. I mean, we have... it. It was better before the pandemic because we actually have to get together in person a few times a year. Um, now it's, it's it has to be uh, remotely. But yeah, we have regular meetings. We talk about the kinds of things that people are doing in each city. Not every city is doing the exact same kinds of climate actions. So you get to hear about um, things that other cities are doing differently. But also for those that do have kind of similar goals, you can you know compare notes and see what's working and what's not. Um, also that, you know, all that remote interaction across country actually did help prepare us for the, for the pandemic a little bit. So we've at least been able to, you know, we were already doing video meetings all the time. So we kind of just smoothly, <laughs> semi-smoothly moved into this. Your grizzled Zoom, Zoom and yeah, uh, virtual veterans. Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. Uh, Danny, one of the things I, I, I've really been enamored with um, in the program is the story of Delivery Associates um, and how the organization uh, came together. Uh, and maybe you could share uh, that kind of backstory in terms of the development of, of your organization. Yeah, sure. Uh, so as I mentioned, Delivery Associates is one of the, the lead partners of the American Cities Climate Challenge alongside NRDC. And what, and what Delivery Associates brings is a very relentless focus on implementation. So that's the, the whole kind of ethos of Delivery Associates. It's just about delivering effectively so that you get res results for residents and the people that you're trying to serve. And so we are a global firm and it kind of originates back to Tony Blair's administration in the United Kingdom. And our founder, uh, Sir Michael Barber was actually the, the head of the delivery unit that Tony Blair set up as part of his, he had a few key priorities that he really wanted to see happen. So for example, reducing hospital wait times. And this is a problem that all governments have across the world and at all levels is just coordination on priority issues, mm -hmm. especially when they're cross-cutting departments is very difficult. Like each department has their, their own priorities, their own issues, their own things that they're looking at. And so the idea of a delivery unit is really taking a, a focus at the center about what is trying to get done mm -hmm. and then applying just rigorous attention to that, to make sure that the right people are coming together, that they understand their roles and responsibilities. They understand mm -hmm. how their actions come together to lead to the outcomes that are desired and that leadership is engaged in a way that allows for problem solving, um, performance management, and really just pushes towards those ends. And it's all really to make sure that that impact happens for the people on the ground. And so this model has really been tried and tested across the globe at all different levels of government, and then at different levels of development as well. So it's one of the things that Delivery Associates through the climate challenge is bringing to cities like Pittsburgh. And one of the coolest, I'd say, government innovation things we're doing mm -hmm. within Pittsburgh is around these climate implementation units, which is following mm -hmm. that same idea of 
how do we really bring a coordinated focus across city government to climate priorities? You, you know, it's in, it's interesting to me because oftentimes we we think of uh, uh, innovation and technology as a, a widget or a gadget or a piece of software, but the the delivery units themselves uh, and the organizational structure um, is an innovation, as you're saying. Um, it, it, why is that? I guess, and, and what are some of the tools that you guys have in your toolbox um, that you've been able to share with us? Yeah, so it seems straightforward, right? That you need to coordinate on priority issues. Um, but we often find that governments will spend, you know, say 90% of their time on writing a policy or a plan or a strategy or a climate action plan. Mm -hmm. But then maybe only 10% of that same energy goes into focused, effective implementation of that policy or plan. So a lot of times what you have in that gap in between is things kind of fall off along the way. Um, and so a lot of our tools are really about bringing back that focus to very specific priorities. So it's, it's not just that you, you have a goal in mind, but that that goal should be an unambiguous target, you know, a number that you can say definitively, yes or no, did we meet our ends? Did we achieve success? It should be time bound. And, and a lot of the tools we bring in are just about mapping out what is that trajectory to success look like? Um, mapping out who's responsible for the different pieces along the way, making sure that all these people know it's, it's, so it's, it's a lot of just bringing people together around that common goal. And I'd say there's a ton of stakeholder coordination. There's a ton on prioritization. There's a ton on very specific action plans and what mm -hmm. that looks like. Right. And then there's, there's a lot around, um, there's a lot we bring around specific problem solving. So just how you structure conversations, how you look at problems, how you eliminate what are symptoms versus mm -hmm. what is the, the root cause of a problem so that you can actually like tackle what's causing delays. So you're like, like the delivery doctor kind of, you're, yeah. you're, you're, you're di diagnosing the, the, you know, the patient's symptoms and, and prescribing the right cure, right? Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> um, well, uh, maybe for, for everyone's benefit, could you explain kind of um, Pittsburgh's role in the challenge and, uh, you know, kind of the areas of focus that we've honed in on uh, here in the city of Pittsburgh? Yeah, so, the, so like most of the cities in the challenge, the, the actions that we have committed to take uh, to reduce our carbon emissions kind of fit into two categories. You've got uh, buildings and energy on one side and then transportation on the other side. Within each of those, there's kind of a mix of things that are uh, citywide and things that are focused on municipal operations. Um, so on the buildings and energy side, for example, um, the city has created a uh, buildings energy benchmarking policy so that uh, commercial buildings of a certain size have to report their energy consumption to the city. Uh, that data is then made public by the city for people to, uh, to be able to get a sense of how, how buildings are performing, which ones are doing well, which ones are, um, you know, could use improvement and, and as a tool for building owners themselves to, to benchmark themselves against other, uh, against other buildings. Uh, similarly, the city partnered with the county or supported the county in creating um, what's known as CPACE, Commercial Property Assessed Clean Energy. It's basically a way to uh, use the county tax system to help building owners finance energy efficiency improvements in a way that 
they wouldn't usually be able to because of the rapid turnover of commercial properties. Um, then within our own facilities, um, where we've been focusing on uh, the energy efficiency of municipal buildings themselves, uh, back at the beginning of 2020, we passed an ordinance locally that requires new new city facilities and large renovations of city facilities to meet a net zero ready standard, uh, which basically means you, you want to create as energy efficient a building as possible to essentially consume a small enough amount of power that you could, you could conceivably power it with on-site power generation. Mm -hmm. um, and that means that now we've been working closely with the Department of Public Works, and we can talk more about that in terms of some of the implementation work to figure out how, to, how do we actually go about making those buildings hyper-efficient when we renovate them. Uh, and we've also been working through the Western Pennsylvania Energy Consortium on procuring renew, uh, clean and renewable energy. Uh, in fact, this year, we, uh, through the renewable energy credits that we purchased, the city is actually getting 100% uh, renewable, energy, so renewable energy. So that's been a really great way to both reduce the amount of energy that we're consuming and also make that energy cleaner. On the transportation side of things, uh, the city has been working to electrify its fleet. Um, we have about a thousand vehicles in the city's fleet. So it's, it's a long multi-year strategy. And honestly, the, the products don't even exist for all of the kind of fleet vehicles we have. But we started with electrifying most, if not all of our, um, you know, the sedans, cars that inspectors drive and things like that. Um, Rebecca has been working tirelessly on getting the charging infrastructure installed to make sure that we can that we can uh, effectively charge those vehicles. Um, so that's a, that's a great way to reduce emissions from one side of city operations. And then on the citywide part of transportation, uh, the Department of Mobility and Infrastructure has been working to implement uh, high priority segments of the bike and pedestrian network. Um, people have probably started to see some of the projects that are being done through what's called Move Forward PGH, uh, which is an effort to install, I believe this next year, we're aiming for 40 or 50 miles of new, uh, new bike infrastructure in particular. Uh, so that's one where we've been, um, we've been charging ahead quickly in terms of meeting, meeting those goals for, for active and carbon-free transportation. That's awesome. Hey, to, to butt in, uh, I think we have a big enough catalog of episodes that we can now refer back to other ones. So for more information on uh, buildings and energy use, you could see the Floor Marion episode. And for more information on electric vehicles, uh, reference the Brandon Walton episode. <laughs> <laughs> you're, Rebecca, right. you're the official historian of the grants. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> I was going to say, Rebecca, you, you've been leading um, to dive into this concept of, uh, of delivery units or implementation units. Um, you've been leading our unit on uh, electrification of vehicles. Um, can, you, can you share what it's been like uh, to lead one of these units and how that has uh, you know, impacted the work that you've been doing on uh, fleet electrification? Yeah. Um... And we're purists or simple people, so we call them a task force uh, in the EV task force world. But uh, yeah, I just came from a, a meeting with that task force, which is now working like a well, uh, I would call it a well-oiled machine, but I or guess- not oiled. Yeah, it's not oiled anymore. So I don't know, I don't know how to describe it. 
Uh, well, 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 well charged machine. Yeah. Well charged. Yeah, charged up. Um, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Danny and, and the rest of the climate challenge team have been super helpful in uh, giving us some structure uh, to move forward. Um, so we were really struggling with how to get uh, the electric vehicle charging infrastructure in the ground. Um, you know, there's a lot of complicating factors of where transformers are and how many amps and volts and things that, um, you know, I really didn't understand. Uh, but through the climate challenge, they've, they've really helped us figure out, like Danny was talking about exactly who those people are that need to be in the room, uh, like from which department. Uh, so we've, uh, we've organized, uh, I think there's six or seven of us now. We just added a new member from permits, licensing and inspections this morning. Um, so now we have a, Is there like a, a ceremony, like when you like bring in a new member or no, there wasn't, but it's a good idea. Good. You might have to look into that. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's really helped us. So, I mean, we've, we've been hyper-focused on trying to get, uh, we have a second Avenue parking lot that we are now turning into the, uh, big fleet EV charging depot. Um, so we've, We've, uh, you know, struggled with that project for well over two years now, um, but we've just uh, gotten all of our responses back on a bid. Um, so we should be moving forward on that. And it's been really interesting to just, uh, you know, the, the, the parts that I would have struggled with, like what goes into a bid uh, and, you know, what part of the contract do we need here and how, how many grants are we getting to, to fund this project? We now have all of those people who can take a piece of it. Mm -hmm. um, so it's really just made it such a simpler process. So, you know, every Friday we meet, um, everybody takes their little piece. We all update each other and then we disperse and go back and the, the project just moves so much more smoothly. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're really grateful to, you know, Danny and the Climate Challenge team for um, letting us take their model and, and run with it. That's awesome. Well, um, I want to come back to you because uh, there's there's more more than delivery associates in terms of like the assistance that comes from the challenge. Uh, can you share with with us, you know, some of the other kind of avenues that we've gone down and assistance that uh, NRDC and the challenge has been able to provide to the city of Pittsburgh? Yeah, so there's a, you know, there's there's basically a, a large network of national technical partners that have been able to um, to jump in and provide assistance in, in various parts of the, the work that we're doing. So another one, for example, on the, um, on the fleet side is Electrification Coalition. They've done a lot of work in helping, you know, identify the right kinds of vehicles and how you model your, um, your fuel and carbon savings and stuff like that. Uh, on the building side, Rocky Mountain Institute is one example that has helped both with um, modeling uh, energy efficiency upgrades in buildings and also on the uh, energy procurement side, helping to work through the, the mechanics of uh, renewable energy procurement of, you know, local on-site solar generation, uh, stuff like that. Uh, we've also recently gotten uh, some broader based assistance from a group called ResourceX, helping us with, uh, with budgeting processes so that we can start to identify the, you know, where we're spending money on these priorities, how we, you know, free up resources to um, to support our, our climate goals and other kinds of priorities. So there there really are a lot of different opportunities uh, that we're getting from that network. That's that's terrific. Yeah, to to add to that really quickly, there's also a lot of uh, local partner support that is brought in through um, 
funding provided by the Energy Foundation. So I know Pittsburgh has worked with, it, what's the, the name of the organization, Will? There, uh, we've worked with both um, the Green Buildings Alliance. Green Building Alliance and PCRG, the uh, Pittsburgh Community Reinvestment Group. And, and across whether it's the technical partners at the national level or the, the local partners, it's just a lot of added capacity to support cities, especially right now with COVID, we've seen, you know, resources are very tight. And so I think that this extra capacity has gone a long way across all these cities. It's one of the, the bigger value aspects of the, the climate challenge. Um, that along with, we discussed earlier, the opportunity for cities to really peer connect and share learnings and mm -hmm. challenges and, and problem solve together, because now there's this giant network of cities that are all leaders on climate change who are able to leverage these resources and talk to one another a lot more easily than they were able to before. You know, I'm dying to know who's winning the climate challenge. <laughs> yeah. It's us, right? The world, the world's winning. Yeah. <laughs> but that that is but that leads to a good question because you know Rebecca and myself and our colleague Sarah Yeager you know put a lot of time into kind of the development of the application uh that you know ultimately brought the climate challenge helped to bring the climate challenge to Pittsburgh uh maybe Danny I'll, I'll point that one at you I mean that the the Bloomberg philanthropy and Bloomberg network has been really supportive of cities um, and we really haven't given that context, right? Like, so uh, could you share share with us like that that backstory of like how we got here, right? Like cities developed an application, applied to a challenge. Um, you know, these resources have, have thankfully kind of come to us, but there was a lot of work in the behind the scenes to kind of make that happen from uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies. Yeah, I, I'd say there's kind of two impeti, impetus, what's the plural of impetus? Um, <laughs> So one will mentioned earlier. It's whatever you want it to be, Danny. It's it's up to impetai. you. Impetai. Um, so will mentioned earlier that you know in the the last administration there there wasn't the kind of federal leadership around climate change that was necessary, and so that was one aspect of it, and and just trying to create support for cities who still were quote unquote all in. That that was one of the big things, all in on climate change. Um, so the other side of that is this belief that most of this change really happens at the city level. Um, and so the climate challenge is really about empowering and emboldening cities to work on climate where it's happening and where it's affecting residents. Um, it's, it's where rubber meets the road. And I've worked at all levels of government and I've got to say, I've, I'm really bought into this belief that cities are where it, it's most effective. I think that there's something to be said about the closeness of elected officials and constituents in a city. That means that there's more accountability, less identity politics, and it's really just about like what needs to happen to make life better. Mm. Um, so the climate challenge just really engenders all of, all of those ideas about that this is something that needs to happen. It happens best at the city level, but at the same time, there needs to be uh, an amount of coordination. So I think that was really what shaped and formed the approach that the climate challenge took. You know, one of the things that I've been saying is that, you know, cities are the delivery units for systemic change, right? Like if you're looking at these issues of climate or inequality, um, effectively, like we're at the epicenter of all of these activities. You know, on a, the climate issue in, in particular, 70 to 80 percent 
of all carbon emissions originate in cities. So if you're going to address it and you know mitigate kind of those emissions, you're going to have to do it in cities around the world, whether that's a mega city like Tokyo or New York or a place like Pittsburgh. It's all kind of an equivalent. What what have you seen, Danny? as some of those shared challenges across cities though, on the implementation side? Well, so really quickly, going back to what you mentioned around the, the 80% of total citywide emissions, the reason that we're focusing on um, buildings and transportation is because that's where that originates is, is in those areas. So yeah, exactly right that it makes sense to focus on cities and it makes sense to focus on transportation and buildings and energy. And I'd say, you know, overall, the biggest challenges that we see across the board, and again, this comes back to a lot of what we're doing with these implementation units, is that city sustainability offices are generally fairly new in a lot of cities across the United States, um, and they don't necessarily or often live at the center of government. So city mm -hmm. sustainability offices have this cross-cutting mandate and purview where they're they're meant to work on something that affects all departments and all operations. And yet they are often siloed somewhere outside of center of government, which makes it really difficult to have that sort of coordinated response that you'd like. Um, so this is something that I think is even replicated at the, the federal level. Um, you know, the EPA is its own department, but really each department should mm -hmm. have its own complete energy and climate focus. Um, so I think that our biggest thing is about trying to create these lines from sustainability offices to mayor's offices and may, or mayor's offices and budgeting offices, just to make sure that there is the teeth needed behind sustainability offices to get the work done. Here, here. Yeah, you know, it, it's one of those things that, uh, you know, my, my colleagues and counterparts in other cities, you know, we, we always kind of lament about this where, you know, our, you know, the, the public and, you know, our mayors and every and ourselves included, like, uh, you know, have set out to develop these ambitious climate plans um, and realize, you know, like the part A, like I said, like we're, we're a part of the solution, right? We're, we're part of that chemistry that's going to be required for the solution. But just now cities are, I think, figuring out and organizations like NRDC and Delivery Associates and Bloomberg, thankfully are there to support that we need to re-engineer systems um, and kind of the, the purpose of government in order to effectively kind of deliver on the plans and strategies that we're developing. Um, Will, you know, on to you with that, I guess, like what, what have some of those shared experiences or aha moments that you and your other uh, climate advisors have seen in these processes in terms of, you know, parachuting into a city and then trying to understand kind of the mechanics of how they work quickly and then trying to kind of navigate systems. Yeah, I mean, I think that is probably the biggest commonality is that most of us had a lot of experience in public policy, but weren't all actually working in city governments. And so, you know, seeing the the messy insides of city government and just the 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 challenges of what you have to do to to like you said to change systems to turn around what's you know even a small city is a big ship and to change you know long established practices um i mean i think it's 
it's a good indicator of how, you know, we, we all know it's addressing climate change is a huge challenge and the work being done in cities really illustrates that because it, it actually does mean changing kind of everything about the way we operate. And so that has to trickle down to, you know, um, everything from, you know, like our benchmarking policy, but also to procurement decisions and budgeting decisions and, and all that stuff. Um, and so I think, you know, that that's something all the climate advisors are seeing is everybody's dealing with the conflicting priorities, obviously with COVID and the impact that it's had on city budgets everywhere. That doesn't make anything uh, any easier. Fortunately for us, I mean, a lot of the stuff that we are trying to do is energy efficiency work that ultimately is going to save the city money. So you can you have the the win-win of both reducing our carbon emissions and also saving ourselves money. So that's been, that's been pretty positive. Yeah, to, to add to that a little bit, I think that as COVID has happened, it's um, obviously a lot of, you know, it's been a tough year for everyone and COVID's had a, a lot of terrible effects across the world and on individuals. But one opportunity it's introduced is um, we can build back better. We don't have to go you know, back to what we had before. Mm-hmm. And what I'm excited about with the Biden administration is that recovery, there's a real chance to focus on green recovery. And mm-hmm. the climate challenge is increasingly looking at where do our climate goals intersect with equity and recovery goals? Um, so for example, if you were going to do a workforce development program in anticipation of, uh, of a ton of recovery funds hopefully coming in, let's focus that work on you know, green high road jobs. And let's mm-hmm. also focus those jobs to historically marginalized communities. Mm-hmm. And in doing so, you can really maximize the impact you're having for residents and for people that you, you know, want to lift everyone up together and make a better future than the one we we had before COVID. You know, that that's a really good point. And and you know, Rebecca, you're you're getting ready to release the uh, the EV strategy uh, that we've developed with NRDC and and you know part part of that uh, process of developing that strategy starts to look uh, through the lens of equity in terms of vehicle electrification. Uh, could you, you share what that's what that conversation has been like in terms of in, embedding and kind of baking in all those those concepts together? Yeah, so, uh, you know, as Danny was talking about um, the technical assistance that we get. So we, uh, through the work of NRDC um, and a lot of engagement with uh, you know the stakeholders of the city and the parking authority developed a, um, a strategic plan for public charging on city facilities and in parking authority parking lots. Um, so over the past year, you know we've had a, a lot of conversations about what is the city's the city and the parking authority's role in uh, providing public charging. Um, so, uh, you know, one of the things that the strategy does is it, it looks at the whole universe of what those assets are and what those facilities are and where the parking exists, um, and then comes up with, you know, where, where do, where should we prioritize siting, um, charging infrastructure, um, you know, as funding becomes available. Um, so one of the one of the uh, strategies that we wanted to, to use for that is is uh, this idea of like, are we more concerned about coverage or are we more concerned about uh, the amount of chargers that are out there to meet demand? Mm-hmm. Um, so we uh, focus that more on making sure that there is uh, equitable coverage across the city. 
um, so that we're, you know, not just, I think in the past, it's been very focused on workplace charging and making sure that you hit the commuters where they're at, at mostly downtown garages. Um, so this gets a little bit more into those, uh, those pockets and neighborhoods where maybe we have some parks or, um, you know, parking authority surface lots that are kind of small, but embedded in those communities and making sure that you know, we're, we're focusing on the equitable coverage around the city so that everybody has access uh, within their neighborhood um, to those, those uh, charging, that charging infrastructure. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, just at, at its very core, if the city is going to be, or if your tax dollars are going to be going towards infrastructure, um, we should make sure that that infrastructure is benefiting everyone and not just, you know, commuters who are, who are coming into the city or, um, mm -hmm you know, just people who can afford a, an electric vehicle at the moment. You know, that that's interesting, too, because I, I'm, I'm thinking about some of the stuff that uh, uh, Christopher Spears at the, the parking authority was sharing with us in terms of the the flip in in mm -hmm. uh, in lot usage. Uh, maybe can you share about that? Yeah, I thought that that I mean, it makes a ton of sense. But, you know, as uh, the pandemic has raged on and people are still working from home, there's not so much workplace charging going on anymore. So, uh, you know, the parking authority has been losing a, a ton of revenue and a ton of customers in their traditional parking garages and downtown lots. Uh, but the uptick in, in, uh, in customers that they've been seeing is uh, people who either live downtown or uh, those lots that are in in those communities where people are are now parking, and that, I think that that's where the the prime charging is going to be, especially in a in a city environment where not everybody has those uh, you know driveways where they could charge uh, their own vehicle. So that's what we're really you know focusing on is those those surface lots and those places that are close to those dense residential areas where people couldn't otherwise um, you know plug into their house or their garage. Which has a lot of resilience benefits too, right? Like in in terms of having kind of that proximity to, you know, communities, uh, but also in terms of the alternative uses of, of potentially charging, right? Um, in terms of storage or other types mm -hmm. of energy assets. Uh, you know, Will Danny introduced this topic to uh, build back better. What does the, you know, our, the city's climate challenge strategy? How does that strategy and what we're working on towards implementation? Uh, lend to that concept of building back better? Well, I think, you know, we, we talked, talked a little bit earlier about the, the requirement for new um, new facilities and renovated facilities being energy efficient. So that's one a good example, especially, if, you know, if, as we hope, we see um, some kind of stimulus funds that come to cities that help develop projects that as we are um, as we're building either new city facilities or you know addressing our lots of our deferred maintenance, that we're not just putting our buildings back the way they were, but that we're creating um, buildings and facilities that are really models for the wider city about how you can do energy efficiency construction, um, the the benefits that it has both for for costs, for quality of life of the people that are inhabiting or using the buildings. Um, I think that's a lot of what the, you know, municipal operations are a relatively small amount of the emissions in Pittsburgh. Uh, but we have this ability to serve as a model for the city and show the, the private sector really what's possible and what can be done when you're, uh, when you're committed to, 
to addressing climate change. And also that, you know, if the city with all of its financial limitations and everything can do it, then certainly, you know, large developers and, and larger businesses should be able to do it as well. So that's, I think that's a big part of it. Uh, maybe, maybe just to pivot a little bit with the conversation. Uh, one of the things that just interested to hear uh, from the three of you about, uh, because you've intersected uh, and interacted with the other cities, are there, uh, and Danny, you have kind of this, probably the best you know, point of view of this. Are there things that we could pilfer from other places uh, that would be well applied in Pittsburgh? Um, like, is there something happening in one of the climate challenge cities that, uh, you know, we should put in our back pocket and bring it back to Pittsburgh? Here? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, Rebecca was talking a little bit about equity of access towards um, electric vehicle charging, but also brought up the fact that not everyone can afford right now an electric vehicle. So there, there's always that issue. And some cool things I'm seeing in a few of the cities, St. Paul, for example, is setting up an electric vehicle car share that is targeted towards low income communities um, just to make sure that you know where there might be gaps in some of the transportation networks, there is a reliable, affordable means to get around that is also you know electric. And this is an opportunity for a lot of these people who have never been able to drive an electric vehicle and, and can't afford one for themselves right now, they can now use them and they have those chargers in their neighborhoods. Um, so I think that's a, a great thing to look at bringing into Pittsburgh so that those chargers are not just be not just utilized by people who can own the cars, but making those that type of transportation more available to others. Mm -hmm. And then similarly in Boston, um, they're looking at launching an e-cargo bike delivery pilot. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about how do we make our streets less congested? Um, there's tons of deliveries happening every day, whether it's food services or Amazon. Um, and Boston especially has fairly narrow streets. And yeah. so something like e-cargo bikes are a great way to get around and you don't actually lose that much time because you're not in traffic all of a sudden. So I think there's a win-win for, you know, customers and people who are waiting for things, but for businesses who are trying to get things out and then just overall for anyone that doesn't want to be in traffic or pollution all day. Terrific. R Rebecca, anything that you've seen? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess I'm hyper-focused on the electric vehicle uh, stuff. That's what I'm closest to, but um, there's a lot of good like engagement tactics, I think that some of the other cities are using. Um, so right now, I think we're, we're still trying to figure out exactly like how to, where do we insert ourselves into existing planning initiatives, uh, like the comp plan or the neighborhood planning to get some feedback on where we do cite some of this infrastructure. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, that's going to be more important when we start to get into right-of-way charging, if we get into right-of-way charging, but um, at least for the lots, you know, we don't want to come in and plop down a bunch of uh, electric vehicle chargers in a place that doesn't need it. And, you know, people ask why, uh, you know, we're installing infrastructure that's maybe not for them or um, that doesn't make sense. So, I, I mean, and then alternatively, there's, you know, other areas where people are, are asking for it. Um, so, you know, how, how do we engage some of that public feedback? I think Portland's doing a good job of that. Um, but excited to learn as we get into the next six months of the climate challenge. That's one of our, our main topics that we're going to explore. Great. Will, how about you? Well, one of the ones that comes to mind actually gets back to that kind of that structural systems change that you talked about. So San Antonio is an example of a city that has set up uh, like an internal revolving fund for energy efficiency improvements so that as they implement projects, buildings, 
lights, whatever, that are, that are uh, increasing the energy efficiency of their facilities, the savings that come from that project, at least a portion of that gets recycled back into the budget specifically for other energy efficiency projects. So you have a self-sustaining uh, process that, that lets you accelerate the, the amount of energy efficiency programming that you can do. Um, so I think that's something, obviously we've talked a little bit about that here, but that's one that, that I think we could, we could probably implement. Terrific. You know, one of the things um, too that we recognize, and there's a lot of systemic change inside of city operations that we're making a lot of headway in, but there's also kind of the needs. We've talked a little bit about the federal government. Um, there's the needs for kind of major systemic investment uh, to be made to help catalyze a lot of this work. Uh, well, a couple couple weeks ago, we were involved in an, an effort at the state level. Uh, with a, a, a policy called REGI, uh, the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative. Um, maybe can you share a little bit about that in terms of how state policy could also impact some of these initiatives? Yeah, the, the broad strokes of it are that um, REGI, the Re Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative, is a multi-state framework of uh, several northeastern states that creates uh, a trading market and cap for carbon emissions from large power producers. So uh, basically you just, you say, we're gonna set a limit on how much carbon can be emitted from power producers in these participating states. Uh, and then there will be auctions at which those power producers can buy the credits for the amount of, of carbon that they're emitting. Uh, and then over time, you you lower that cap to bring your emissions down and you, from the auctions, you have a source of revenue that can be used to support uh, a wide array of things uh, from energy efficiency to clean air, et cetera. So currently Pennsylvania is not part of REGI, but uh, the Department of Environmental Protection has been developing a theory, uh, set of regulations that would bring Pennsylvania into the Reggie framework. So the stuff that you and I were uh, participating in a month or two ago was in that rulemaking process. They're now, uh, they're now advancing the point where they're, they're developing the procedures for actually how the proceeds of those um, carbon allotment auctions would be used. So that actually gets back to one of your earlier questions too about the, you know, how does this tie into build back better and all this stuff is, you suddenly have this pot of money, ideally, that comes out of this that you can use to uh, to support other types of projects that are that help support clean air locally, that further energy efficiency, that can address environmental justice concerns. Um, that was one of the things that um, that's been actually very encouraging is that the the DEP has explicitly called out environmental justice as mm -hmm. a priority for the way that that money will get spent. Um, to address both communities that are disproportionately affected by air pollution and by the effects of climate change, but also communities that are economically reliant on fossil fuels and that will need support as we transition from um, fossil fuel energy economy to a clean energy economy. Uh, so there are a lot of really great opportunities there. And that's one where, you know, it's a state it's a state regulation, but the city can engage both in advocating for its adoption and also helping to shape 
to shape the way that it's implemented using our local knowledge of, of our local communities to make sure that those resources are going to the right places. That's interesting. And so like we're talking hundreds, the opportunities like hundreds of millions of dollars that can be brought into kind of the ecosystem to help local governments, municipalities, universities, schools, hospitals, you know, advance energy efficiency and, and help lead this transition, right? Yep, that's right. That's terrific. Hey, um, so just we're, we're kind of up against time. And so we want to uh, just kind of move to our final segment here, which is uh, reading, listening and watching and kind of learning uh, from our guests what you're reading what you're listening to or what you're watching. Um, and so Danny, we're going to put you on the hot seat first as our guest um, because Will and Rebecca and I get to catch up all the time. So we, we kind of get a sense a little bit, but what are some things right now that, uh, you know, either on kind of your, your, uh, your coffee table or in your earbuds or on your television screen? Yeah, sure. So to stay on topic, um, a recommendation to everyone to watch David Attenborough's A Life on Our Planet. So good. It's- yeah, you know, it's a sort of call to action to prioritize as a human race, not, you know, individual people or individual countries, regions, um, but we all need to a collective response to climate change. Um, so we've talked about that coordination issue. And I think that that documentary gets at that. But if like me, you struggle to watch the destruction of the planet or animals, um, Sir Attenborough also just recently delivered a message to the UN Security Council on the topic. And so you can watch that on YouTube and it's... um it's a little less visually depressing <laughs> in some ways. Um, and then reading wise, I'm actually this year trying to read a lot of the classics. So I just finished a tale of two cities. Um, and once you get through the, I guess it's like 19th century language that feels like reading a, a <laughs> yeah, it's, it's different, but it was really good. Surprise. Classics are good. <laughs> classics. <laughs> I mean, they're classics for reasons, right? <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, that's the, that's the second vote for for the Attenborough documentary. Uh, oh, nice! That's good. Yeah. So there's a, we should probably have like a poll on this, but uh, Sir At- David Attenborough is out in front right now. Rebecca recommended this earlier. Um, Will, how about you? What what's uh, you're consuming? Uh, what are you consuming these days? Well, unfortunately, most of my reading tends to be doom scrolling Twitter, as we've often talked about. But when I'm not not doing that, um, <laughs> I, I sort of veer towards, a, well, I don't know if it's escapism if you're into like dystopian sci-fi, but I, um, I recently read William Gibson's new, newish book called The Peripheral, which is about, well, I would sound really nerdy if I went into all the descriptions of it, but it's like a, you know, futuristic cyberpunk kind of, kind of thing that was, that was a fun escape. And then um, just watched a, a cool uh, Korean kind of sci-fi space, Star Wars kind of movie called Space Sweepers that's okay. about uh, again a sort of dystopian future where the earth the environment of the earth is falling apart and people are trying to move to other planets um and Wait, a, a, rag, a ragtag group that of what's uh, happening a ragtag group of space trash collectors have to uh to to try to save the world from like an evil corporate overlord I find it funny that your escapism is into, you know, worse worlds than what we yeah, live in now. I'm not doing a very, a very good job of escaping. <laughs> How about you, Rebecca? Uh, I have the same problem as Will. Uh, so we went back and watched all the Terminators, or one and two at least. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> yeah. I've never actually seen the whole thing before, so. 
Um, this is my my first full Terminator one and Terminator two, and they're kind of scarily relevant. It feels how, like. How did they age? Um, yeah, I mean, kind of like 1984. I read that at the beginning of the pandemic too. So I mean, they've aged well, uh, scarily well, you know. It, in terms of like the cinematography, though, like was it? Um, it still kind of like kept pace and everything. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it seemed okay. It, it. Would, I think it would be interesting. And I forget what was it. Twenty twenty nine that they come back from. Yeah. So it'd be really interesting to like, you know, have, and or have the. Uh, I guess there's a whole bunch of Terminators, but I'm only up to one and two. But I guess you know whatever one they're up to 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 do one that's timely from now and then going back and like acting like it's 1984 instead of actually being 1984 and, and acting for the future, you know? You know, that's interesting. Like, is that something maybe was part of the eighties, I guess, cause you had like back to the future and um, you know, there was like a number of those that were playing with time. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, that's pretty interesting. Oh, it's good stuff. Um, what about you? Me? Um, yeah. So uh, my nerdy side, uh, our friends over at Penn future, uh, just put out a pretty interesting report uh, called Buried Out of Sight, uh, which looks at the impacts of fossil fuel subsidies in Pennsylvania. Um, so that's, uh, it's, it, it's not a fun read, but it is pretty interesting um, to kind of go along with this group's theme here. Um, you know, it, it's, it's fascinating to look and they do a pretty good job of kind of um, connecting dots, you know, with regards to like how we were just talking about systems that evolved and have developed over time that have just supported the fossil fuel industry in the state. Um, and, you know, at the time those things were created, there was reasons for that, right? And now we're trying to find ways to untangle them um, because of all the things that we've talked about. So it's, mm -hmm. um, it's a pretty illuminating report. So I, I recommend that. Um, and then uh, on the fun side, uh, talking about going back to movies, uh, uh, we watched uh, Meet the Fockers the other the other day, which was uh, trying to find like so like uh, you know I have a seven and a thirteen year old, so it's trying to find movies, particularly with the thirteen year old, that we can watch that are you know appropriate for everyone, right? Um, so that was uh, that talk about one that aged well. That it's still pretty funny, so um nice. so that's some good stuff well hey guys uh it is good talking with everyone um and kind of a, a a not it's it's still a work setting i guess um but it's good to kind of dive deeper with everyone um and share kind of the work that we're doing so i really appreciate you guys and um and sharing your stories with us here today so danny and will thank you and rebecca's always thank you as well thanks for having, thanks for having us, us. Yeah, thanks all right, everyone. Uh, so let me get this right on the way out. My name is Grant Irvin, and thank you for joining the Grant Street Experience. Uh, it's great to be with you today, and we will talk to you soon. Take care. Bye.